Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Bruce Fryer for a conversation about Roman contract law. Dr. Fryer is John and Teresa de Arms, Distinguished University Professor of Classics and Roman Law in the Law School at the University of Michigan, based in the U.S., He's the author of many publications over his career, including authoring the forthcoming book, A Casebook on the Roman Law of Contracts, which will be published by Oxford University Press and is scheduled to come out soon. Welcome to the call, Bruce. Thank you. Nice to talk with you, Andrew. Nice to chat with you as well. I'm I'm excited to chat with you today about this topic. Okay, so we're chatting Roman contract law. So as a... um, a question to start to create sufficient uh, background and context for the conversation. Can you summarize when uh, someone says Roman contract law, can you summarize what that is or what they are referring to? Uh, there are, uh, uh, Rome, of course, is, uh, is a, uh, a country, a, a uh, empire that existed for a very long time, over 2000 years. Uh, but, um, the period of time that, that one is most interested in uh, today is the period from the end of the Roman Republic, about 100 BCE, down to the middle of the 3rd century CE, so the space of about 350 years. And uh, during this time, uh, Roman law was principally developed by a group of people called the Roman Juris, and it's the writings of the Roman Juris that survived to us in excerpted form we're mainly interested in when we talk about Roman contract law. So what is it about the first century BC, BCE, um, where this topic starts to shape form? Is it that the body of juris begins to exist or is there, or is there something else about the first century? I think it's a, it was a very turbulent time. This is the time uh, when the republican institutions were sort of coming to pieces. But the jurists were a group of people, um, uh, mostly of, of uh, upper-class extraction, who, um, who concentrated on thinking about legal rules and thinking about the principles underlying them, the concepts out of which they are built. And they create, uh, they're, they're historically important because they, they create the legal profession. Um, it was a time, despite the turbulence of, uh, of tremendous economic growth um, that came about as a result of the consolidation of the, of the Roman Empire, um, and, um, and and Roman contract law is sort of is formed within this matrix. Um, uh, it, it, it's older than this period, but um, but uh, is is heavily developed by the jurists, starting with the end of the Republic going on continuously um, up until the jurists fade from view in the middle of the 3rd century CE um, in in another period of turbulence um, uh, prior to the the late empire. Okay. Um, And what is the the translation for jurists to translate that into English? Uh, the the standard uh, the, the standard uh, Latin term is juris prudens. Um, it means somebody who's skilled in the law, so just expert in the law. Um, and um, 
Originally, these, these, uh, there's nothing equivalent to them in our legal system today, um, but they are people who are outside the, ju ju the judicial system itself. That is to say, they, ha they are not judges, they are not uh, lawyers in, in our sense, um, but they are experts in, in, in the substance of the law and in legal procedure. And the people who are participating in Roman trials could turn to them uh, for, ad for advice on what the law was. Um, it's, it's difficult to explain, and I always have a great deal of difficulty explaining the concept to, um, uh, to students as well. Uh, but um, uh, these, these people, uh, through their intense discussion and through their, uh, through their writings, really gave birth to the legal profession within, uh, within um, what we've come to think of as the West. Um, uh, and, um, and, and, uh, have, have served as an example of what legal experts are. I, I should say also, they're not professors of law. There's nothing like law schools at the time that they, that they began working. There's no evidence for law schools until the middle of the second century, uh, CE, um, or that's controversial, but I think most people agree today that, um, there's no formal legal education involved until the middle of the second century. Was it almost, um, and you, you said the, the actual position doesn't exist in contemporary, so um, I'm trying to scratch at something that can most be comparable um, to, to contemporary terms. Was it almost like they were, um, you said, you said they're, they're not lawyers, they're not, they're not professors, they're not jury members, was it almost like they were a body that could provide uh, counsel on uh, interpretations of of law in Roman law? Yes, it's exactly that. Um, I, the, uh, we value them today more for their for their writings, but they did a great deal of of counseling. And uh, I, I, I want to stress they do this for free. There's no um, no fee involved um, uh, during the uh, what's called the classical period of the age of the jurors. Um, so they are open to all comers uh, who who want legal uh, authoritative legal advice. Um, the um, no one is obliged to use them, and um, uh, and their authority is not originally guaranteed by the state, but gradually they come to be more and more central to the operation, until finally at the end of the classical period, in the last century of its existence. Um, they do start to become absorbed into the judicial system and, and begin to play a much more formal role in, in, in judging. Um, so gradually, you know, in the course of time during the Roman Empire, um, the Roman legal system starts to look a little bit like a modern system of law. Um, but originally it was, it was very, um, very decentralized. It was largely operated by lay people. Um, uh, it probably resembled, uh, for the most part, a sort of glorified version of this of a small claims court. Um, uh, so um, the development is immensely important because it um, it gives rise to the idea of a legal profession uh, that is a learned profession and separate from uh, separate from um, ordinary society. Um, uh, and that has all kinds of historical implications that lie beyond the Roman period. But um, 
that doesn't start happening until Roman law is rediscovered uh, for the west of, uh, of Europe. That doesn't start happening until Roman law is rediscovered in the 11th century. So it's mm -hmm. uh, after the fall of the Western Empire. That's just a long, long interval um, before um, uh, before uh, the uh, Roman writings start to come back to influence developments in in in, uh, in Europe. And you mentioned, um, I want to go to a, a term that you mentioned, jurisprudence. Um, that really strikes me in, in English as jury, jurisprudence. Um, and so jurisprudence, my understanding of that basically is it's like the theory of law. Um, is, is, how, is that the same as what it was uh, then, that term, or did it mean something slightly different? Yeah, today it's usually, uh, uh, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no absolute uh, standard um, fixed notion as to what jurisprudence is uh, in modern uh, modern legal usage, um, but it usually is, is uh, separated off as a more theoretical discussion. For instance, what do lawyers mean when they talk about one event causing another? And um, uh, on, on a fairly abstract level, um, uh, what what is what is a contract? Uh, thought of as a, not as something that is part of actual law, but thought of as a uh, more philosophical notion of, uh, uh, of law. That's not what um, jurisprudentia, the Latin word, means, really. It, it, it refers to expertise in all areas of, of the law, right down to details of procedure and so on, actual legal rules. Um, and these people were not theorists. They don't write about uh, the jurists, the Roman jurists were not theorists. They don't write about law from a theoretical perspective. Uh, they write about the, um, about the detail of law. It's extraordinary, it, uh, it's, it's extraordinary to read these um, uh, writings, even in their excerpted form. Uh, the jurists are, are very, very detail-oriented. And that's part of what I'm attempting to convey in my book about Roman contract law. Okay, yeah, I'm glad I asked that question. On one hand, jur jurisprudence sounds like more more about philosophizing and, and theory. On the other hand, this sounds very uh, objective and concrete. I think that's right. Um, it isn't that they're incapable of, of rather abstract legal thinking. They do do quite a lot of abstract legal thinking, but... Um, that, that legal thinking is always uh, subordinated to the task of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of the application of law within the real world. Um, uh, and this develops in, in, uh, through very close attention to the Roman procedural system and so on. As I say, it's very, very hard to find a parallel for them in modern uh, law, although all of the elements of what they do are present in um, in our legal system in one way or another. Um, but they're not philosophers. Um, uh, uh, they, they show some philosophical uh, evidence, of, uh, influence at the margins, but they are not philosophers, and they're not thinking about justice, for instance, in, in any sort of abstract sense. I, the um, a line I use in, in, in my book, um, which has long sort of appealed to me, is that is that they tend to show the virtues of thinking inside the box. Uh, they are very much, uh, they are much, they're very much inner oriented, um, uh, and so you you won't get you won't get uh, um, flights of fancy about uh, uh, about uh, 
how law should operate or anything like that. Nice aphorism. <laughs> okay. Um, so when we're talking contract law and you circumscribed this uh, period, which I think is great for the conversation, first uh, century BCE to third century CE. So for the most part, we'll work or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in that side that right. um, period. And, you know, if we wander out, that's fine too, but for the most part. So, uh, so when, when someone's talking about contract law, what are the types of contracts that would have been uh, created and what, what would their purposes have been? Oh, the, um, actually the Romans, uh, 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 the Roman system, which is this is the procedural system, which was mostly in place before the jurists started to uh, work intensively on contracts, um, it, it describes. Uh, just let me uh, yeah, sort of speak in the general terms. Descri- describes two broad types of contracts. Um, one of these involves the um uh, a, a formal promise of one person to another um uh that is given uh, orally and that obligates um obligates one of the parties to do something for the other party for instance let us say pay fifty dollars or whatever um that is uh, that is a, a form of contract that's called a stipulation and it's very important in roman law the romans made heavy use of it despite the inconvenience of having a oral um, form that has to be attested somehow if it comes to a, a court trial. On the other hand, uh, the Romans also develop a number of contracts that are formed. Um, for instance, the contract of sale is one of the great con, uh, contracts that are formed simply through agreement between the parties without any formality. So they're not like stipulation. And those contracts involve um, the application of, uh, of a requirement called good faith um, that is used as an idea to develop the duties of parties toward one another. Uh, by, by, uh, the, the jurists uh, um, uh, extensively develop these duties. Um, and it's here that, uh, that, that the Roman contract law starts to look decidedly more modern. Um, we have, uh, in some states of the United States, still have a contract under seal that allows for a um, what's called a unilateral promise, um, using Roman terminology, um, uh, whereby someone makes a promise that is enforceable on the basis of the form in which the promise is made. Um, but uh, that 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 um, that type of contract has almost disappeared in the United States uh, as a a valid way of making contracts. We think of contracts as mainly in our modern commercial world as contracts of exchange, like sale, or like lease, um, or like uh, or, or like partnership. Um, we think of them as contracts in which there is a there's there's a I'll give you this and and in turn in return you'll give me that. Um, uh, the Romans don't necessarily think that way yet, um, although the um, the uh, bilateral contracts, um, contracts with rights and duties on both sides, do form an, an extremely important part of their overall contract scheme. I hope I'm answering your question. You know, no, it's, this is great, Bruce. And um, the last part there might be a natural segue uh, to the concept of consideration in, in contracts. Yes. Can, can you, for um, th- anyone listening that 
isn't familiar with the term inside of a contract context, can you please explain what consideration is and um, as it pertains to contracts? And if if that existed in this in this period, um, and what I'm and what I'm interested too about about it is if there was any part in this period where contracts existed, but consideration uh, necessarily didn't need to be part of the contract. Yes, a stipulation is a unilateral promise and doesn't involve uh, uh, any return. Um, uh, usually, one supposes that a promise is given in some sort of larger context um, uh, of, of interrelationships, but there's no necessary return. Consideration in modern law is a, is a concept that is related to, um, to the idea of a bilateral, at least in American law, to the concept of uh, a, a bilateral exchange. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, it, it is uh, a law concentrates uh, our law concentrates on the on the promise made by one individual and says that that promise must be supported by consideration. Consideration is something flowing in the other direction, um, and it, um, it it represents a, a quid pro quo. Um, the the Romans. Uh, do not require anything like consideration. They do require, for instance, that a contract of sale have the elements of a contract of sale. So there has to be an object of sale and there has to be a price. But they don't, um, they, they don't um, require anything like what we call consideration. Um, and um, that is, that is uh, also characteristic of, of the um, of civil law contract, uh, the the law of the European continent, as uh, derived from Roman law, it also has the doctrine of consideration. For us, it is uh, the doctrine of consideration is mainly something that is formally required in order for a promise to be binding. So, for instance, if I promise to make you a gift of uh, of of five thousand dollars or whatever, that promise by um, must be supported by consideration in order to be enforceable. There has to be something that I'm getting for my promise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But under a stipulation, for instance, in Roman law, there was no such requirement. Uh, a, a gift was a perfectly good reason for enforcing um, uh, a, a uh, unilateral promise. Am I making myself clear? Yeah, yeah. It's an excellent actually. It's an excellent example that you provided the gift. Um, example. So the, the what we call a donative promise. Um, uh, uh, um, so, for instance, uh, even if I even if I make a promise to a charity in modern law, that promise is unenforceable unless I'm getting something back for it. If if the uh, institution says, "Okay, if you give us uh, five million dollars, we'll name a building after you," then I'm getting something back for it. Yeah, and so let's let's go keep going with that example then, um, Bruce. So in Roman law in this time period, if someone uh, promised a, a donation to an organization and then they did not fulfill on that do- donation, they could be liable. Is that correct? Uh, actually, uh, ac- um, uh, let me just distinguish. Mm-hmm. Um, as a broad rule, if the promise was f- was done in through the formality of a stipulation. 
That is to say, if one party, the promisee, the recipient of the promise says, do you promise to give me five million? And the other party says, I promise. That is enforceable. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, in late law, it, it, um, in, in later classical law, uh, the um, a promise to a municipality can become enforceable simply by virtue of the um, promise being to a municipality. Um, so it no longer has to be in the form of a stipulation. Um, that's simply a matter of public policy. Um, we like we like cities to be benefited. So if uh, you're in uh, Rome in this period having uh, drinks at the bar, you better be careful um, in what you're saying. <laughs> yes, I think that's, um, uh, that, that's often been commented upon. Um, uh, the, um, the form is very um, easy to recognize, but it's also dangerous um, uh, because the, the, uh, in a, with a stipulation, the, the promise is enforced according to its wording. And if you make a mistake in the wording, um, you may lose something that you wanted under the promise. Um, so um, uh, that's something, I, I think it's also true, for instance, um, we hear a, a lot of, uh, quite, quite frequently, um, formal promises, stipulations were given in the context of, of creating dowries for uh, Roman women. Dowry is something that flows from the family of the, or from, of the bride or from the bride herself to her, uh, to her, uh, uh, future husband's side. Um, and, um, and, and the promise, a, a promise can be made of dowry. Um, and that promise becomes enforceable when the marriage takes place. Um, but, uh, in the context of making a marriage, it, it can be rather awkward having a, formal promise being made. So there, there are lots of problems with stipulation, which the Romans eventually seem to have come to recognize, and the stipulation gradually fades. But it has a long, long history, over a thousand years um, of, of validity for the oral uh, arrangement. How um, punctilious were contracts in this period? You mentioned uh, some components that needed to be a part of it, such as good, good faith was expected. But what about things like, um, did a witness uh, need to be present? Uh, and it, and if, if so, in some cases, what were the cases where a witness needed to be present for the, the signing of a contract? You also see on a lot of contracts, as you know, you know, where the parties are signing or entering into the contract as in terms of the actual city or, or region. So um, how, how what, can you can maybe expand on some of the other components and how punctilious um, was enforcement around ensuring these to someone, you know, outside of law, for instance, might say, yeah, you know, you know, what, who cares if uh, we write down where we actually signed it? Right. So can you can you elaborate on that piece? Pretty punctilious, but um, uh, the the stipulation, the, the this this big important contract, unilateral promise, is the oral um, transaction, and it is valid whether or not it can be proved in court. It's theoretically valid if it can't be proved, because the judge won't uh, uh, the judge won't uh, enforce it. So by the early empire, it's pretty clear that Romans fairly regularly wrote down the con wrote down the promise. And we have a number of examples, a large number of examples of these surviving from the Roman world of these promises. 
um, and um, those promises could be witnessed. Um, if, if if there was no writing, it might be to the it would certainly be to the advantage of the promisee, the recipient of the promise, to have witnesses present to attest to what had happened, um, and hopefully they will all agree on what happened. Um, but um, but no writing is required. Uh, the same thing is true for for the main bilateral consensual contracts, the, like sale, that are simply concluded by agreement between the parties. There's no obligation on the part of the parties to put their agreement into writing. But for more important transactions, we have to suppose that they that they normally did, and we have some examples of sales documents that do this. So um, uh, writing becomes gradually more and more important. You have to remember, I think, that, um, uh, that an awful lot of people, we don't know the exact number, but probably well over half the people in the Roman Empire uh, were illiterate. Um, and uh, so the, um, although there are risks involved in illiteracy, obviously, uh, they do, do business with one another mainly on the basis of trust. Um, Cicero, uh, oftentimes, uh, I've read is cited as a, as a lawyer. Now back then they won't have the regulatory bodies that we have today, like the, you know, the bar association and, and, uh, so on and so forth. Do you consider Cicero, um, as, um, ha having been a lawyer, do you consider him to have been a lawyer and do, does the actual regulatory side of law uh, like like regulating lawyers, does that start to take take form? Um, I guess part of that question is, um, do lawyers um, as a body, as a profession, actually exist in this uh, period of time? Yeah, you. It, it um, it's a it's a very very complicated question. Um, but um, Cicero uh, knew quite a lot about the law, more than I think most advocates did. But he but he is not technically a jurist and doesn't claim to be. He's very interested in what the jurists are doing and writes about it uh, frequently. But he is predominantly an advocate and predominantly trained in rhetoric. So he delivers speeches in private law cases, more or less more or less throughout his life. Um, but mainly at the beginning uh, of his uh, of his career, he he represents uh, because his writings survive in such uh, a quantity. He represents the whole class of advocates, um, and advocates uh, were in Roman uh, procedure pretty free to say what they wanted to in court. They aren't constrained very much by standards of decency. Um, so some of the most vitriolic um, speeches that survived to us from the ancient world are from these advocates. They are not required to be trained in the law um, for most of the Roman period. Um, up until the second half of the fifth century CE, there was no formal requirement that advocates, any advocates, have legal training. And that seems to us just extraordinary. But um, uh, the uh, basic argument um, that, pe that people use is that there, there were really two um, classes of, of uh, legally educated people, if you will. Um, one is the jurists who are intensely concerned with the content of legal rules and thinking about and developing legal rules. And the other is the advocates who are mainly interested in winning cases for their clients. Um, 
there is a tendency, a gradual tendency, to amalgamate these two within a within a broader uh, profession, but only only towards the end of the um, of of the Roman Empire does this become at the end of the Western Empire, at any rate, does this become uh, official? Okay. Um, so if someone has a, a dispute, there's there's a disagreement. They believe that. Uh, or claim that uh, a contract isn't fulfilled on, um, what options did they have in this period? They, um, so what would happen uh, if, I'm, I'm going to suppose someone who's relatively well off, um, what would happen is that they would take their case to court, um, usually not themselves, but through an advocate. Um, and either they or their advocate uh, might consult a jurist about the relevant law and the relevant law to be applied. Um, or the judge might do that. Um, uh, the, the judge in the case might do that. Um, uh, any, uh, basically anybody can do this, but um, the parties to a trial are much likelier perhaps to consult a, or consult a jurist. Um, but you get this this sort of bifurcation in the legal profession that is hard to understand from a modern perspective. It somewhat resembles the uh, bifurcation between uh, solicitors and um, and barristers. Um, the advocates are more like barristers. Um, the uh, the, um, the jurists have more resemblance to solicitors in English uh, in the English legal profession. Okay. Um, and was it, uh, uh, it's not an exact comparison, let me say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and was it, um, law, like some, some other professions, not just law, but law, uh, gets this, um, kind of reputation, uh, probably within the industry and without the industry of, of being, uh, cumbersome. It can be expensive with, with certain cases like claims, right? They go on a really long time. So, so we're going back a couple thousand years. So would you compare it back then on those kind of points? Would you compare it back then to what it is like now? And if not, how was it different? Well, it's um, uh, uh, when you get into the actual operation of the judicial system, it has a pretty poor reputation uh, amongst Romans. Um, uh, we're not talking here about the jurors. The jurors tend to, tend to be accepted from this, um, tend to be accepted. There is criticism of the jurors, but it's not very um uh it's not very strong but there is a lot of criticism of the judicial system right along the lines that you suggest suggest um that it's that it is slow and cumbersome and and expensive um the expense coming uh uh not just from the process itself uh but often from uh, a sense that the as uh, petronius puts it the, the judge who presides beats a gavel of gold um there is a, there's something going on that is uh that is uh, illicit in the determination of law um and the romans often uh, roman writers often express a desire never to go to court if they can possibly avoid it um uh, the romans thought of themselves as litigious but most peoples do and it's a little hard to determine um uh how how likely it was that a Roman would end up in court at some stage. Um, I'm not talking about criminal law here. I'm talking uh, mainly about private lawsuits um, uh, between uh, between individuals. Um, but um, uh, we certainly run into um, 
run into uh, references to cases that went on for for many many years, <laughs> um, uh, mm-hmm. and um, must have been a great source of annoyance to the parties that were involved. For instance, uh, uh, if uh, in by the by the late empire, it, there's an, a, an appeal system that's become well developed, but traveling around in order to get to the courts to make the pleas that weren't necessary would be very expensive and mm. and, and difficult. Um, so, um, what with one thing and another, the system didn't work terribly well uh, when you got down to the nuts and bolts of the actual application of the law. Um, there, there's a sort of, because of the jurists mainly, there's a sort of myth um, that has been built up of, of the Romans as being very devoted to the law and um, I think that's that's pretty largely an empty myth. Um, I, uh, we don't think necessarily. I mean, we have lots and lots of law in the United States, immense amounts of law in the United States. But we don't necessarily think of, of Americans as being devoted to the law. <laughs> uh, um, um, but it's hard to tell. I, the, um, uh, there are some things about Roman culture that lead to um, uh, lead to respect for the law but there are things that definitely don't um, uh, for instance it's a very um, uh, the society is heavily divided in terms of its wealth and so on social status okay um, so if you were to describe Bruce uh, at the end of this period that we're talking about um, if you were to summarize how Roman law evolved, throughout this period. So uh, the end of the period, when you look back at the start of the period, what are two or three kind of big examples that come to mind? Well, I'm not sure I can easily summarize it because it's, uh, it's a matter of details. But the jurists um, seem to have taken a system, a procedural system that um, was founded upon and, and developed around an agrarian society. And I, I want to, the economy of Rome was always agrarian. I mean, it, it, um, uh, like, all, uh, uh, like all pre-modern societies, it was heavily dependent on agriculture. But there had come to develop, uh, there had come to develop in Roman law, uh, in, Roman, in the Roman economy, and uh, as I'll explain in a second, also in Roman law, there had come to develop a more uh, lively commercial um, side to it also. So um, we hear of this, um, uh, the, the activity, for instance, around ports and around the imports of things into Rome uh, uh, of, uh, of not only um, uh, expensive things, but also staples like wine and grain. Um, and uh, all of this is arranged through contracts. Um, and, and there are merchants who specialize in all of these things. Um, and um, uh, the jurists uh, gradually take this early agrarian system and uh, try to reshape it um, as best they can to the needs of a, a, a more lively economy. Uh, that's the main thing that happens. The Roman uh, jurists had to use the concepts available to them and the judicial mechanisms available to them in order to achieve that. Um, I would say that's the thing that stands out in the sources. It's a very slow development. Um, and some of it was going on even at the very end. Um, 
we have, for instance, uh, um, uh, sources that deal with um, interest-bearing uh, bank deposits. Um, and that's something that isn't recognized, although it was certainly going on in, in banking practice, wasn't recognized until the very, very end of the classical period of Roman law. So um, uh, it's a difficult process often, but uh, you can see the jurors are striving to uh, make sense of the world around them in term in legal terms. Okay. Um, a couple closing questions. I think you mentioned uh, that the jurists as a body disappeared in the third uh, century CE. So if, if that's the case, why did it disappear? We don't know exactly. Uh, the usual explanation is that, um, that it was political. Um, that is to say that uh, the jurists were a power center separate from the emperor and eventually um, they were discouraged and went out of existence. I, I think that that may be true to some extent, but um, but what, what struck me is probably more important is that the jurists had always been a, a, a community, uh, a smallish community in Rome, mainly, uh, with very few exceptions. Um, and uh, writing writing these these legal works for one another, um, and um, and they had always so existed, so to speak, in a in a in a, um, in, in a climate of intellectualism that um that was fragile um and uh if there were not brilliant people to carry this on from generation to generation um they um they were not necessarily able to survive as a as a group um i can't prove that we don't actually know why it is that the mm -hmm. jurists went out of existence but by the time they did uh in the mid uh in the mid third century ce by the time they did Law schools had grown up. Um, educated, legally educated bureaucrats were were becoming more common. Um, uh, 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 law had law had taken hold in Roman society, um, and remained uh, in 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 um, remained present um, despite the um, despite the decline of the jurists. A lot of them seemed to have gra gravitated toward the imperial bureaucracy, the upper ranks of the imperial bureaucracy, and um, and there to have been responsible, for instance, for emperors writing uh, writing laws that look more and more legal from our, our perspective. Okay, closing question, Bruce. Sure. How does uh, derivatives of Roman law live on today uh, well they live on um they live on still th mainly through the codes um codification is a movement in europe that that begins begins fairly early uh begins in the early modern period but actually takes wing uh, so to speak in the 19th century um the the um, great examples are the french civil code um uh, at the beginning of the century and the german civil code at the end but each country um, in Europe uh, developed its own code, and they tended to call upon a range of concepts that had gradually been developed out of, uh, out of uh, Roman law and other sources, but mainly out of Roman law, uh, providing a kind of language, a common language for law on the continent of Europe. England uh, and Wales stand as the great exception to that. Um, 
uh, common law remains uh, independent, um, although sometimes influenced by the um, uh, the development of civil law. But the codification is what really ends the um, the independent influence of Roman law, because once uh, once codification had occurred, it's the code that is the source of the law, and no longer uh, no longer Roman legal sources. Um, and um, uh, although Roman law continues to be taught in in, in most law schools in in, in Europe, it, 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 it is increasingly not a required subject. Um, so um, the great period of influence then is from um, is from the 11th and 12th century down to the 18th century, um, uh, when uh, when Roman law was just part of the common discourse. Some um, some uh, writers have tried to uh, call for the revival of Roman law as a basis for a new common European law, but that seems unlikely to occur. Um, there are so many new topics that are now added in uh, uh, to uh, to the consideration of law. I mean, atomic law and uh, um, uh, laws of energy conservation and so on that uh, the private law concerns of the civil codes, um, although they are still important, now seem, um, uh, now seem much less central than they had once seemed. This is a great episode, Bruce, and it's been fun chatting with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Andrew. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Fryer wrote that's forthcoming and scheduled to come out soon, a casebook on the Roman law of contracts. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Bruce and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.